All right, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, would you please turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. We've been going through our series, A Letter to the Exiles, which is looking at 1 and 2 Peter, and it's taking us much longer to get through chapter 1 than I anticipated, but it's been good. And last week we were talking about how God has given us this free and precious gift of salvation that he's writing to this church that is going through intense persecution and they're losing everything because they've put their faith in Jesus. They're losing families, they're losing their homes, some of them are losing their very lives. They're not allowed to do business inside of the city that they live in. There is a cost that has been associated with them saying that I follow Jesus, that I believe that Jesus is Lord and I'm going to follow him. And so Peter writes to them, he reminds them, like, look, you might lose everything in this world the enemy might you know, work on other people's hearts to make them persecute you and take away all of these other things, but the one thing that you can never lose is your salvation. That is something that the enemy can never steal from you. It is something that no man, no government can ever take away. And because of that, that means that you will always have the joy and the peace that comes from your salvation. So he's reminding them of this free gift that they've been given and he's encouraging them to stand strong inside of that. And then we're looking at, he goes on, he says, now, salvation isn't where this all ends. That isn't the only thing that happened to you when you made the decision to follow Jesus. If that were the case, then as soon as you said, Jesus, I follow you, you know, it'd be like, boop, 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 float up to heaven, and that's the end of it. But that's not what happens. We remain here on the earth. And too many times what we do is we just look forward to this future event of where we stand before the judgment seat of Christ and he says, you are guiltless, you are sinless, enter into the reward that's been prepared for you and we just try to stay away from the world and all of its influences so we can stay pure and holy and clean. But what Peter is now saying to us is that you aren't just someone who was saved, but you are someone who has been called. Because one of the last things Jesus said before he ascended into heaven was he gave us a mission. It was actually the commission. It wasn't just a commission, it was a great commission. And he says that I'm calling you to be those who go out into all of the world and make disciples of me. That's why you're still here on the earth. That's what the church is about. That's what every church, if you look at any mission statement, it's always about making disciples. If your mission statement doesn't have something to do with making disciples, then you should probably change your mission statement because it's not following the thing that God's called us to do. And so we're here, we're a people who have been saved, we're awaiting that future salvation, but while we're waiting for that, we've been called to go out into all of the world and to make disciples of Jesus everywhere we go. That should be the thing that every morning you wake up and you're like, how can I make disciples today? When you're sitting there and you're eating your breakfast and you're like, how can I make disciples today? You gotta be thinking about it. It should be on our mind all the time. We're eating our lunch. We're having interactions with our friends, our coworkers. We're sitting around with our family. It's like, Jesus, who are these people you've opened up divine opportunities for me to make disciples in? How can I live? How can I model out this incredible thing that you've done inside of my life? When you go to bed at night, it should be, how do I make disciples tomorrow? God, what can I do? I mean, this desire to make disciples should be something that dominates our thought life, our prayer life, the way that we live and that we act and we move around others. It should all be focused on how is it that I can fulfill this calling that God has put on my life. And if that isn't, then we've got a problem with our hearts. If we wake up every day and it's like, okay, how do I go make some money? Or, you know, how can I do this? Or how can I do that? Or your distractions are, okay, who are on Facebook? Oh, I gotta check Instagram. You know, there's all these distractions, these things that get in the way that are meaningless and purposeless and they distract us from the calling, the holy calling that God has put on our lives. 
But I think there's a couple reasons why we don't just get excited about this, why this isn't the primary focus of our lives as believers. And I think the first thing is that we have a passion problem. We might say, yeah, you know, I'm here, we're the church, we're going to make disciples, all that stuff, but it's not something that you're really passionate about. It's not something that's burning inside of your heart. It's something you intellectually agree with, but it hasn't influenced the way that you live your life. And if that's the case for you this morning, then it comes down to you saying, God, I need you to move on my heart. Holy Spirit, I need you to come and I need you to change me. I need for you to put that fire inside of me. God, I need you to break me for your kingdom causes. I need you to do something inside of my heart because me, of myself, I've lost that passion to do what it is that you've called me to do. And one of the best ways that you can do that is you go and you identify with people. I remember the first time that I went on a mission trip and I saw what real destitute poverty looked like. That changed my heart. Because before, it's like you see clips on the news, you hear about there's really poor people somewhere in the world, but it's not something that you're broken about. It's not something that you're wanting to make a difference in because it hasn't become real to you yet. You haven't identified with that. But then when you get around people who are living in destitute poverty, it changes you. It breaks your heart and you decide, I need to be used somehow by God to be a part of the solution to this problem. And maybe you aren't passionate because you don't spend enough time being around broken people. You aren't identifying with them in their brokenness and what it is that they're living through, the hopelessness that they have, the hurt and the pain that is so real to them. Well, the thing is that we serve a God who's able to meet every single one of those needs. We serve a God who has all power and all authority. There is nothing that is impossible for him. And he's a compassionate God that is moved by the plight of his people. So we have to identify with people and allow that to stir up a passion inside of us. And then the second reason why I think that we don't go out and take this call to evangelism real seriously because we don't think that we can do it. We just don't think that we're someone that God can use to make disciples. And that's related to an identity issue. You see, what you can do is determined by what you are. There's this popular saying that you can do anything that you put your mind to. You guys have heard that? Your parents probably told you that. Teachers probably told you that. Well, you know what? It's a lie. Because I wanted to be a major league pitcher. I put my mind to I remember since first grade when they uh, had our coaches pitching to us in Little League, I was like, I'm going to be that guy, that dad that's throwing to the little kids. That could be me someday. And so I started working hard. And, you know, as I got older, they allowed me to pitch, and I loved it. And I was a good pitcher in a Class B school in the middle of the country, which means you're terrible. But I was working hard at it, and I got my dad a catcher's mitt, and we'd go out there every day, and he'd squat down on his knees and catch pitch after pitch after pitch. I was working on, you know, curves and sliders and change-ups, two-seam fastballs, four-seam fastballs. I was, you know, reading books and watching video. I was, I was just pouring myself into this because I believed that I can do anything that I put my mind to. And when my dad's knees got too tired, I cut out a rectangular shape of plywood and put that on the backstop, and I kept pitching at that. I put hour after hour, thousands and thousands of pitches into this. And when I got into high school, I realized that I had a crushing lack of talent. <laughs> you see, I couldn't do anything that I put my mind to. I could only do what I was, and I was not an elite athlete. And it turns out you have to be pretty good to be able to be a major league pitcher. So, if what you can do is determined by what you are, it becomes very important that we figure out what it is that we are. Because your success in making disciples is determined by what you are. The reason that you can make disciples 
is because God made you to be a disciple maker. It's your designed purpose. You were created for this purpose. It was his intent in you when he created you. And this is what uh, Jesus says through Peter to us in 1 Peter 2, 9 through 11. He says, but you are a royal, or sorry, are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's chosen people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. You can succeed in making disciples of Jesus because that is what you are. The first thing that Peter's saying here is that you are chosen. Think about that. You are a chosen people. Now, a lot of times when we think about being chosen, that's kind of scary. We think of when you're a kid and you're in a classroom and you don't know the answer to the question that the teachers ask. You're like, oh, Jesus, please, don't let her choose me. Like, I'll be a missionary. Just don't let her choose me. I'll be nice to my sister, whatever you do. And then they always call you and you don't know the answer. And you're like, why was I chosen? I'm so unqualified. I can't do this. And a lot of times we get this idea of being chosen by God from the way that our culture operates. Because when you're chosen in our world, it's based on your qualifications. You guys remember sending out applications for college? Colleges don't just come to you. Hey, good news, I want you to come to our college. Don't know anything about you, but I want you to come. No, you have to fill out an application. You have to come up with all of these lies about how qualified you are and how much they would benefit from having you there. You guys remember writing down extracurricular activities and how uh, creative you got in your license to expound upon those? Because you knew that if I want to be chosen to go to this school, I have to somehow build myself up in their eyes. I have to look like I am qualified, like they are going to benefit from choosing me. Or think about job interviews. Have you guys ever been in a job interview and you know that you're in over your head and you're trying to convince them that you're really the right person for this job? You feel this pressure like, I have to be something great. I have to be someone that's qualified to get this. Or think about dating. That's the biggest con job there has ever been in the entire world. And now with online dating, well, I bet 90% of all the profile pictures are of someone else or 10 years old. Like, everybody's trying to represent themselves in a way that makes them look better because they know that they have to be qualified, they have to be good enough to be chosen. But let me ask you this question. In the kingdom of God, things are different. How was it that you received salvation? Was it because you were qualified? Was it because you're good enough? Because Team Jesus was going to benefit so much from having you be his cleanup hitter? He chose you. It was a free gift that he gave to you. All you had to do in this equation was say, Jesus, I believe you for my salvation. It had nothing to do with you. It had nothing to do with how good you were. You weren't qualified for your salvation. And it's the same way with God's choosing us to be his people, choosing us to be those who make disciples. It has nothing to do with how good you are. It has nothing to do with how you might have earned this position or this role. It was completely on God. He chose you knowing how unqualified, how ungood you were. And this is the good thing about that. Since there was nothing that we did to be chosen to be disciple makers, there's nothing we can do that will disqualify us from this calling that's on us. 
It says that the gifts in the calling of God are irrevocable. Now, there are things that you can do to lose God's favor and to earn God's favor, but there's nothing you can do that will change the calling on your life. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are called to make disciples. A lot of times we look at our lives and we say, look what I've done. You don't know the sins of my past. You don't know the sins that I'm struggling with right now. There's no way God can use me for this. I've disqualified myself from his choosing. But that is a lie from the enemy. You see, if you find yourself in a place where you keep focusing on the sins of your past and that's keeping you from viewing yourself as someone that can be used by God to make disciples, then you need to recognize that Jesus' blood covered every one of those sins. You have been forgiven. God doesn't remember the sin. The guilt and the shame have been removed from it. The only person that's still accusing you is the devil, and he's a liar. Don't listen to the devil. He never has anything good to say. And if you are struggling with sin and you haven't been following Jesus, you haven't been living as a disciple yourself, then God isn't here to condemn you for that or say, look what you've done, get away from me. He's saying, repent, turn back towards me, and let's get back on this job because you are still someone who's been called to go into all of this world and to make disciples. You are chosen by God. And then secondly, you are a royal priesthood. Now, being a priest is something that we have kind of a different image of today. You think of a priest as someone that wears the white collar and, you know, you make the sign of the cross and you, you know, absolve people of sin and stuff like that. But for the people that are being written to in this time, the idea of a priest was very different. A priest for them was someone who represented God to the people. They were someone that interceded on the behalf of the people and they made sacrifices to reconcile people to God. And so what Peter is saying through this is he's saying is that we are someone that has been called to operate in a priestly way in the world that's around us. It's no longer the tribe of Levi that operates as priest in the temple, but that God is building a temple out of souls, out of the people that inhabit this world. And he says that you all, if you're a follower of me, that you have been called to be a part of this royal priesthood. Your job now is you go and you represent me to the world that's around you. And one of the greatest ways that we represent God to the people who are around us is we tell the story of what it is that God's done in our own life. That's where it says that we proclaim the excellencies of him. Well, how do you know the excellencies of God aside from what it is that he's done inside of your own life? You see, if you can't get up there and talk about what it is that God's done inside of your own heart, there's no way you can open up the Bible and talk about what he's done inside of someone else's heart. It won't be authentic. It won't be something anybody will believe because you don't believe it yourself if you haven't experienced God's goodness inside of your own life. And one of the best ways, one of the greatest tools that I've ever used in evangelism is I just tell people what Jesus has done in me and what I know he can do in their own life because I saw the proof of it in my own heart. I remember meeting this guy who's just broken. He was drunk, so you never know how drunk conversions go. But <laughs> he was open to me and his life was just falling apart. Wife had left him having, you know, terrible dreams, some addiction issues going on. And all I was able to do is he's telling me about all these things that he's tried. And I, said, and I just told him about what it was that God had done in my own heart. I talked about how God had set me free. I talked about how God had put hope inside of me. About how now I had a relationship with the living God. And that he spoke to me and he listened to me. And I was able to follow him and God had put the gift of the Holy Spirit inside of me. And it moved on him. And it led him to the place where he decided, that's what I want for my life. 
and I was able to lead him to the Lord, and I wasn't from the area, so I was able to direct him to a church to get plugged into, but it was that simple. I just had to proclaim the excellencies of God. I just had to tell the people what it was that he had done in my own life, tell them about his love, talk about his salvation, the hope, the reconciliation, the peace, all of the things that I had received. And secondly, we intercede for people. That's the second thing that we do as a priest. The priest would go there and and they would stand and they would say, God, I ask that you would move on the behalf of these people that I'm representing before you. And so that's what we do too. We pray and we say, God, there are broken people that are all around me. There are people that need a touch from you and they might not come to you to ask for it themselves. They might not even know how to do that or what it looks like to come to you. But God, you've called me to be a priest. You've called me to intercede on their behalf and to go to you for them even when they won't go for you. You know, one of my favorite stories of this in the Bible is when the the four friends bring their crippled friend to Jesus because they know that if they can get their crippled friend to Jesus, that Jesus can heal him. And they go through great lengths. You know, they cut the hole in the roof of someone's home who they don't know, which that can be dangerous. But they're like, nothing's going to keep me from getting my friend into the presence of the God who can heal him. And that's the perfect picture of what intercession is. We've been called to bring our friends into the presence of the living God, the one who can heal them, the one who can set them free, the one who can breathe life inside of them. And so we have to get serious about praying for them I prayed for a friend for 15 years one time, and he's still not like a real strong Christian, but after 15 years of praying and interceding on his behalf, he came to the point where he recognized God's goodness. He recognized that Jesus is Lord, and he decided that he was going to surrender his life to him and to his plan. 15 years of interceding on his behalf, and I have friends that still haven't made that decision. It might be 20 years, it might be 30 years, it might be on my deathbed, my last dying prayer might be the one that finally works and that intercession on them over all of these years leads them to the point of where they put their faith in Jesus. But whatever it's worth, I mean, however long it takes, it's worth it because we're a priest, we've been called to intercede for others. And then we've been called to make sacrifices. Jesus was... The sacrifice now, that's atoned for the sins of the world. We don't have to go out and you know, sacrifice neighbor animals and farm animals to try to atone and cause the remission of sin. But what we do is now we've been called to make spiritual sacrifices that will put people into places of where they can have an encounter with God. Part of that was the, the priests, they would go into the temple and they would clean it. You know, they'd set things up. They would tear things down. That was a part of the priestly duties, the sacrifices that they were a part of. And that's the same thing that happens here. We're a portable church. Oh my goodness, we've got priestly duties like you wouldn't believe. And we have this guy, Tommy. I don't even know if he's in here this morning. But he, yeah, wherever Tommy is, man, this guy is a priest. He might not even know it. He might not recognize it. But he walks here every morning. There's three Sundays in the whole year where it's sunny and a nice walk. The rest of them are probably sleet, rain, thunderstorm, snow. But he walks here every Sunday morning. He sets up the kids' area. He makes coffee. He sets out signs. He does whatever it is that he needs to do. And in doing that, he's making a spiritual sacrifice. He's operating in his priestly duties. And he's creating a place where other people can come in now and they can have an encounter with God that changes their lives forever. Everything that you do for the kingdom is a sacrifice that has a reward. Everything that you do for the kingdom, you might think, I'm sweeping a floor in the church. How can this have any significance? But when you come into a church and you slip on something nasty or there's a mic and Ike stuck between your shoes because we meet in a movie theater, that can be something that is a distraction to people. 
When we go through and we just prepare and we make the place as excellent as we can and we put this labor into making a place where people can come and hear about the love of Jesus for them and the power of the gospel, you're fulfilling your priestly duties. You're having an eternal kingdom impact that will last forever. Now, in the same way, every single one of us, we're all priests, just like Tommy is. We've all been called to make these spiritual sacrifices so that other people will come to know the power of God inside of their lives. And you aren't just a priest, you're a royal priest. Now, this is a time of kings. We don't have a whole lot of kings left in the world, so it's a foreign concept to us. But there would, every king would have their own priest. That would be their inner circle. They would be the ones that had the access to the king. They knew the king personally. And they had the authority of the king and they had the resources of the king at their disposal. So what does that mean now for us as Christians? We're in the court of the king of all kings. The king whose authority we're able to exercise is the king who has all authority in heaven and on earth. The king whose resources have been made available to us, he's the king that owns a thousand hills and all the cattle on them. We have unlimited authority and power, access. We have unlimited resources at our disposal to exercise the priestly duties that we've been called to. And think about this. What hasn't God withheld from us? I love talking to Brother Abraham in India because he's talking about we're building orphanages, we're building a hospital, and he has no money. And I'm like, how do you do that? He's like, oh, Pastor Jeremy, I just fast and pray and the Lord provides. That's it? Like the king, the king just gives you what it is that you need to do the things that he's called you to. It's not based on the resources or the authority and power that you have. It's based on his resources, his power, and his authority. And think about this. He's given us the Holy Spirit. When he gave the Great Commission and said, I want you to go out and to make disciples, he said, but I want you to wait in Jerusalem until power comes on you from high. The Holy Spirit, the power and presence of God, God himself lives and dwells inside of us, equips us and empowers us so that we can operate supernaturally in the mission that he's called us to. When we look at Jesus and we saw him having you know, wisdom that he shouldn't have had and words of wisdom and knowledge and healing people and I mean all these other crazy things that are going on, that was all empowered by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit now dwells and resides in every one of our hearts. The same power that raised Christ from the dead resides in front, inside of us. What is it that we need to make disciples when the resources and the power of heaven have been poured out upon us? You have absolutely everything you need. You're chosen, you're called, you're a priest, and you have the resources and the power of heaven at your access to do the thing that God has called you to do. Now last week, when Pastor Lee was here, I loved it because he was talking about, he, he you know, had this vision of looking out and seeing every chair in this theater filled and then one more person coming in and one of us having to get up and to give that seat to the person so someone's standing there in the back. That was a vision I had. It was actually in this theater. Now we've moved back into this theater again. When I first saw this, I think it was May of 2012. That was the vision and that was the dream that I had for this place. That's what God put inside of my heart. So as Pastor Lee was talking about that, it resonated inside of me. And it stirred up something. It stirred up into my heart remembrance of what it was that God called us to. And so that's what I call it. We're going for plus one. How many people do we want in this place? Plus one. We're going to fill, not these front two seats because we got lights and stuff there. So whatever plus one, that's what we're going for. That's what we've been called to do. And as I look around this place, you know what the biggest problem with this theater is? 
there aren't enough seats. There are 354,000 people in our county. In this area, less than 5% of the people here attend a church. That means that we have over 300,000 people here that need to get plugged into a church body where they can encounter God, where they can have their life changed, where they can exist inside of the community they were made to be a part of. We don't have enough seats. We don't have one one-thousandth of what we need to reach the unchurched in this area. So here's what we're going to do. This is going to become the new focus for us. We're going for plus one. And when we get to plus one here, and there's someone standing up in the back, we're going to two services. And when we get to plus one in both of those services, we're going to get a bigger building. And we're going to keep doing this over and over again. We're going to keep adding services, and we're going to keep getting bigger buildings and more locations and more venues until we get to the point of where when we get to plus one, there's nobody left that needs a church anymore. That's what God's called us to do. Because this is what's important. This isn't just like, okay, this is my job description, this is what I'm supposed to do, and I'm going to kind of play Minecraft at work. No, this is something that has to be stirred up inside of our hearts. This has to be the passion that drives us in our life because I truly believe that there are over 300,000 people in our area that are going through their life without the hope of Jesus and go into eternity without the hope of salvation. That's unacceptable. That cannot happen inside of my city. Not while there's still breath inside of these lungs of mine. We have to be broken for the people that are around us. We have to recognize the calling, the authority, and the power that God has put inside of every one of our lives. We can do this because we were called, we were chosen, we've been made a royal priesthood. All of the power and the access and the authority and the resources of heaven, the Holy Spirit himself has been given to us so that we can accomplish this one purpose. Too many times I think we view the Holy Spirit as our, you know, this is like our entertainer, this is going to get our, you know, our spiritual highs, we're going to have a good time. But that's not why he was given to us. He was given to us to make disciples. He was given to us to go out into all the world so that when we preach this gospel, which is foolishness to the wise, we then confirm it with the power of the Holy Spirit being demonstrated. That's why we were given the Holy Spirit. That's why Jesus laid down his life. That's why the 12 disciples, minus John, he's the only one that got to live to an old age. They all laid down their life for this cause because they believed it was worth more than anything else. They had seen Jesus. They had walked with Jesus. They had received the commission and something happened inside of their hearts that led them to say, this is the most important cause. This is the reason why I'm here. I was born for this purpose. And whatever else might happen, whatever I might go through, I am going to lay down my life so that other would come to know Christ. And this is how we do it. This is how we get to plus one. We operate as a priest. And it starts with us inviting people. Let me ask you this. For those of you that have been attending Radiant Church, in the last two years, has God done something inside of your life? Has he spoken to you? Have you encountered him? Has he changed you? Has he brought healing or restoration, new hope, vision into you? Has he done this inside of the hearts of the people of Radiant Church? Well, he can do it inside of the hearts of every other person as well. God has created a space inside of this theater where he comes and he walks amongst the seats and he speaks to people. We've seen hundreds of people give their lives to Jesus. We've seen marriages reconciled. Uh, we've seen people that were Muslims, Buddhists, Hindus, atheists, agnostics, people come and cry out at the feet of Jesus and receive the free gift of salvation. We've seen God do miraculous healings all because someone invited someone to come into this place to encounter God. 
You've been positioned in the midst of over 300,000 people that need a move of God inside of their hearts. You know people in your family, your friends, your workplace that need to have an encounter with God. And when you invite them and you bring them, you drive them here, you take them out to lunch afterwards, whatever it takes, you cut a hole in their roof and raise them out of it. Whatever it takes, you invite them, you do it with boldness, you do it with faith, you do it with persistence, you do it with love, but get them into the church so that they can have an encounter with God that changes them forever. And if they hate it, tell them it was an off week, come back next week, it'll be better. And just keep doing that until they stick. And then number two, you can't just invite them, you have to intercede for them. That means you have to pray. You have to say, God, would you stir up their hearts? That invitation I've extended to them, God, would you move on them so that they would actually come? Holy Spirit, would you be breaking down the walls that they've built up that would keep them from you? You see, when people don't have the Holy Spirit operating inside of them, it says that there are spiritual blinders that are covering their eyes so they can't even see the truth. They can come in here and you could just be like, they're worship, like, oh my goodness, the presence of God is so strong, it's so sweet. And they're like, what? Because they have spiritual blinders on and the Holy Spirit removes them. And so you pray, God, draw them into this place. Break down the walls. Expose the lies of the enemy. Reveal truth. Reveal the Father. Reveal the way of salvation. Stir something up inside of them. You pray for them, and if it takes years for them to get here, you keep praying for them because your friends and families and coworkers and people you meet on the streets, their eternal soul is worth your persistence and your perseverance in the place of prayer. And I dare say, and this is a hard thing to say in Western culture, fast for them. Nobody likes fasting. But you set aside a day a week where you say, God, I'm committing to coming after you, denying myself and putting my focus on fasting and praying for these people that they would come to a saving knowledge of you. And then number three, you have to create. That's what we do. We create a place. This church, this theater, the kids' ministry, the greeters, first impressions, set up, tear down, coffee makers, sweepers, cleaners, everybody that's here that's a part of serving, you're creating a place where people can come and have that encounter with God. And if we don't create that place, then they will never have that encounter. See, there's a story I love in 2 Kings. It says, uh, One day the widow of a member of a group of prophets came to Elisha and cried out, My husband who served you is dead, and you know how he feared the Lord. But now a creditor has come threatening to take my two sons as slaves. What can I do to help you, Elisha asked. Tell me, what do you have in the house? Nothing at all except a flask of oil, she replied. And Elisha said, borrow as many empty jars as you can from your friends and neighbors. Then go into your house with your sons and shut the door behind you. Pour olive oil from your flask into the jars, setting each one aside when it is filled. So she did as she was told. Her sons kept bringing jars to her and she filled one after another. And soon every container was full to the brim. Bring me another jar, she said to one of her sons. There aren't any more, he cried. And then the olive oil stopped flowing. And when she told the man of God what had happened, he said to her, now sell the olive oil, pay your debts, and you and your sons can live on what is left over. You see what happened is God met this woman's need in proportion to her preparation. If she'd had three jars, three jars would have been filled. If she had a hundred jars, a hundred jars would have been filled. However much she prepared for God was how much he was going to fill. And the same is true for us. God is going to fill this church in proportion to our preparation, in proportion to the space that we create for him. You know why we have the number of people we do here? Because that's what we're prepared for. 
For us to get to plus one, it means that we need to do more preparation. It means that we need more musicians. It means that we need more people running lights and graphics and sound. It means that we need more people setting signs out by the road and in the parking lot. It means that we need more people making coffee. It means that we need more people taking care of our kids and teaching them to love and to know Jesus. We need more people greeting you at the door and shaking your hand and sweeping floors and everything else because right now we are limited by the preparation that we've put into what God wants to do. And as we continue to prepare more and get more people operating in their priestly duties to create a place for God to come, he will come and he will fill and when it reaches the full point of what we've prepared, the oil will stop. I don't ever want to be limiting God in what he wants to do inside of our city because we have only prepared for a small amount. If we prepare for 25 people, we will have 25 people. But if we prepare for a thousand, then we will have a thousand because there are over 300,000 people here that need preparation. Sorry, my mic is flipping out. So here's what I need you guys to do. For us to get to plus one, I'll have Brian come up here and play, is number one, you need to invite. Be bold. Be persistent. But people won't come unless you invite them. Number two, you need to pray. Jesus said you have not because you ask not. You don't just need to ask your friends and family and coworkers to come to church. You need to ask Jesus to move on their heart to get them to church and then to do something inside of their heart once they're here. And then number three is we need to create. And I'm not afraid to ask you guys to be a part of creating with us. Why? Because you're a priest. It's what you do. And because our city so desperately needs it. Every one of us needs to be a part of what it is that God wants to do here. There's something that every one of us can do. And you can sign up on your info card for somewhere you want to serve. Or if you don't even know where you want to serve, you can let me know and we'll find a spot for you. You can go to our website under readinga2.com, get involved. You can sign up to serve there. Everybody has something they can do here. And the need is so great. It's not that we're desperate right now, but there's a desperate people out there that need us to prepare for them.